One of my favorite movies is a 1998 movie starring Jim Carrey called The Truman Show. One of Jim Carrey's, um, he did a couple of serious roles. You know, he's kind of known for more of his humor. But The Truman Show is the story of a man born into a television program. And you know, don't miss the name Truman, the significance. He's the only person that is not an actor in his world. And he does not know this. He just thinks this is life. The reality is his mom, his dad's an actor, his best friend's an actor. He grows up, gets married. His wife is an actor. Everyone around him, in fact, the, the, whole, the whole world that, as far as he's aware of, is all contrived. It, it's all deception. Uh, there's this giant dome that looks like a sky in a whole town, which, by the way, was filmed in Seaside. For those of you 38 people, I was down there recently, and I learned this. It was filmed in Seaside, Florida. Like, the perfect little place, you know? And so Truman grows up in this contrived world, this delusion, and he does not realize that he is not in the real world. There's only one person in the show who tries to tell Truman the truth. It's this woman that he meets. They, I think they first meet in high school, and, and she kind of steals him away for a brief moment where, where they're alone so no one can stop her from what she's going to say, and she tries to tell him it's not real. It's not real. Of course, you can imagine growing up in this, someone all of a sudden encounters you and starts talking to you and says, it's not real. <laughs> what are you saying? Like, what are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense to him. The producers quickly realize what's going on, and, and, and they, they grab her. You know, they, they pull her off, and she's kicked off the show. Truman never sees her again, but he can never forget her because a single encounter with someone who spoke truth was enough to slowly begin to open his eyes. At the end of the movie, truly, Truman bravely confronts the truth, which is everything he'd known has been a lie. And he's forced to make a difficult decision, either stay in the delusion where things are comfortable even though they're not real, or step out into the real world which he knows nothing about. And I'll leave you in suspense right there. <laughs> I basically told you the whole movie except for the final scene, but... In the book of John, John uses to represent a world that's not actually real. People don't have eyes to see. And John, in the very first chapter of John's gospel, says, the light has come into the world, and darkness has not overcome it. And then we learn throughout John's gospel who the light is course it's none other than the person of Jesus Christ and this lightness and darkness metaphor to represent truth and deception keeps coming up over and over in John's gospel and, and chapter 8 is probably the culmination or the, the, the highest point of this metaphor Jesus himself says I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life in verses 31-32 of that same chapter, Jesus says, If you abide in my word and are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, finish it with me, and the truth will set you free. You start understanding Jesus' mission, ultimately, is to come as the truth in the world, to dispel the deception, to open people's eyes to see what's real, what's true, to step out of the delusion, to invite them into the real world. Later in that same chapter, chapter 8, Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain. Let me tell you who's behind all this deception. He starts talking about the deceiver, 
Satan, and he calls him a liar and the father of lies. So what he's saying about Satan is Satan is the source. Satan is the origin of all the lies. Everything around us. Satan's the puppet master back there. The, 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 the prince of this world is the great deceiver. He is a liar and the father of lies. Now fast forward to chapter 16. This is our text this morning. Jesus is in the final conversation with his followers before he's arrested. Here's what he's teaching them. He's saying, listen, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to leave the spirit. And he calls the spirit the spirit of truth. In our text this morning, Jesus is helping the disciples understand the spirit of truth's mission in the world. And the spirit of truth's mission in the world has everything to do with freeing the world from the deception that it's caught up in. So I want to pick it up in verse 7, which was the last verse that Lloyd covered last week, and then I'll keep going 8 through 15, which is our text. Look along with me, and we'll put these verses on the screen. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the living word of God for us today. We put 8 through 11 back on, on the screen. These are particularly important verses because they're describing the purpose and mission of the Spirit in the world. And I put emphasis on that last phrase because up till this point, Jesus has talked about the purpose and mission of the Spirit in the disciples. Now he's saying the Spirit is, is on a mission in the world. And here's the mission. Here's the purpose of the Spirit in the world. It's very clear right here in Jesus' words. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now there's a lot to this. We're going to unpack this. Uh, the place we need to start is with the word convict. The, the verb here is, is carrying a lot of the meaning. Now, in English, especially in our modern ears, we hear the word convict and we kind of just think it's going to make the world feel guilty. That's <laughs> kind of the idea of convict means to make someone feel guilty. Or from a legal sense, maybe to sentence them to prison. That's not really capturing the nuance of the Greek word. And anytime you're translating from one language to another, you, there's never or rarely perfect one-to-one -one correspondence word-to-word -word. so if you read multiple english translations it helps you in your bible study because you can get a better idea for for what the nuances of some of the greek words are in other english translations you'll you'll see the word convict as we have here in the english standard version you'll also see the word convince you'll also sometimes see the word expose he will convict the world or he will convince the world or he will expose the world isn't this interesting if you actually you know do a word study on the greek word here's essentially what it means it means to show that something is wrong or incorrect by explaining the truth 
So it's to uncover a lie by explaining the truth. So it's like someone's had the wrong idea about something. Say, so actually, let me show you. That's, that's not true. Here's what's true. Or someone's headed in the wrong direction. They don't know it. They think they're going one place, and they're headed towards a different place. Like, you're going the wrong way. Let me explain the truth. Let me pull out a map and show you these kinds of things. That's, that's the word convict in the Greek. Remember the context. And this is why I started with Truman Show. John's gospel is teaching us the world is caught in, in a darkness. It's caught in a web of lies and, and can't see the truth. Jesus is saying the Spirit's mission in the world is to reveal the truth, to convict the world, to, to show the truth, you see, to, to pull back the blinders of the lies, to, to sort of be like that one person in the Truman Show say, I need to tell you something, it's not real. That's the role of the Spirit in the world. In other words, hold up a sign to a world heading in the wrong direction and say, turn around. Wake up. So that's the word convict. And then you get to these three interesting, well, before I go to these three interesting words, sin, righteousness, judgment, let me, let me just say one thing. How does the spirit interact with the world? You thought about that? that? I can't see the spirit of God. You can't see the spirit of God. And the scripture tells us it's, it's like the wind. You, know, you can't see it, but, but you see its effects. How does the Spirit interact with the world? Well, primarily through followers of Jesus, people like you and me, because that's where the Spirit of God dwells. So what's being described here is the mission of the Spirit in and through the church, in and through people like us. So, so the Spirit's mission in and through us, put your, hand around, your mind around this, to convict the world. This is the Spirit's mission in and through us, to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I'm thinking, oh boy, I don't want that mission. You know, it's the Spirit's mission, but I'm thinking, I don't know that I want to be a part of that. Because those are three words that are really hard to talk about in our cultural context. Keep in mind, Jesus could have mentioned any number of things here, like to convict the world concerning lots of different things. There are many things that the world is deceived about. But Jesus specifically mentions these three. These are the things the Spirit of truth is going to focus on, convict the world of, regarding sin or concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. The implication is that these three things are the roots of the whole deception. Expose the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment and people's eyes will be opened and they'll be able to see through the whole delusion and the deception around them and be set free. The truth will set them free. Now, as I mentioned, if you think about these three words in our contemporary cultural context, not easy to talk about these. Have you ever thought about what that tells you? The world's very defended against these concepts, is it not? Like you want to pick a fight, just tell someone, let's talk about sin. Let's talk about the sin in you. Or even let's talk about the sin in me. They're going to be like, oh, I don't, I don't, there's no sin. Talk about judgment. Talk about righteousness, you see. You get yourself in a lot of hot water talking about these things. Why might that be? I think in part because the deceiver, okay, who is also for, for the time being the prince of the world, knows these are core truths, knows these are really important to his grand delusion. And so the world is well defended against these concepts. I think Jesus is saying here, he's saying, listen, the, 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 the spirit, when he comes to convict the world on these three things, this is where truth and deception will collide. In other words, these are the front lines in the battle of light and darkness. 
So let's drill down on these three words because if the Spirit is in us and wants to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, and it wants to do that through us, we need to understand what these concepts are. Let's start with sin. Very difficult to talk about in our context today, but we need to talk about it more, not less. The temptation is to talk about it less. We don't talk about sin. The world doesn't want to hear about sin. Let's talk about the, the, the good things to talk about. Well, I want to turn that upside down, and I, and I want to tell you how much help we can give to the world by talking about sin. But how we talk about sin really, really matters. We need to learn to talk about sin in, in our culture in a way that digs underneath the defenses that the, 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 with the truth of God's word. Why is it hard to talk about sin in our concept? Because the world has redefined sin. The world has misunderstood sin. I think the perception of the world regarding sin is something like this. Sin's not real. See how they've turned that upside down? The world would say sin is just a a, a construct that religious people have created so they can judge others. So they can feel, you know, superior in their hypocrisy. This is what the world would say about the concept of sin. The world would essentially say, naming any behavior as a sin is an affront to personal freedom. It's an attack on my personal freedom if you start saying that my behavior or my action is a sin. So how do we talk about sin in a culture like this, the one that we live in? Because clearly the Spirit would desire for us to talk about it more, not less. I think a really good starting place are the words of Jesus right after sin. You notice each of these concepts, he has a short phrase. He says, concerning sin, here it is down here. I'll circle this one as well. Because they do not believe in me. This is the phrase that I want to drill down on for a minute or two. What Jesus seems to be saying here is the root issue of sin is unbelief. Specifically, unbelief in him. This is really important. So when we think of sin, we, we think of what, what I would call the, the surface level sins, you know, things like uh, murder and lying and stealing and cheating and lusting and these kinds of things. Jesus is saying, actually, the root of those surface level sins is unbelief, unbelief in me. And, and to the world, they would say, are you kidding me? Jesus is saying that unbelief in him is the core sin or the root under all other sins. How arrogant, how exclusive, how ridiculous. How could Jesus be claiming that the root sin is unbelief in him? That absolutely seems to be what he is claiming here. Well, it only makes sense if you have a deeper biblical understanding of sin and a deeper understanding of Jesus and who he is. So let me take you back into the Old Testament. Let me take you back in history. 587 B.C., the Babylonian army conquered Jerusalem, like kicked the Hebrew people out of the promised land, exiled them away. They desecrated the temple of God. They burned the city. It was, no question, the definitive moment of judgment for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And in the ashes of Jerusalem, God sent a prophet, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's purpose was to explain how in the world it came to this. What in the world went wrong that God's chosen people would be plucked out of the land and the temple desecrated and the city burned? And this is what God says. This is God's answer to the question, how did this happen, what went wrong? Through the prophet Jeremiah, listen to Jeremiah 2.13. God speaking, my people have committed two sins. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is God's big picture explanation for what happened. What's so interesting, he says, they've committed two sins. How many sins had they committed? I mean, thousands, millions, right? All the anger and the pride, the lust, the idolatry, all these kinds of things. He's saying the root issue is only two, and if you really think about it, it's two sides of one. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Y'all, cistern water was the worst kind of water. The best kind of water was living water. Living water is the the water that's on the move. It bubbles up from the spring underground, and it flows. It's fresh. It's on the move. It stays clean. Cistern water is not even a well. A cistern is just a hole in the ground that they would dig to capture the rainwater as it would roll down the the hillside. And guess what would come with the rainwater? Everything you could imagine, all the dirt, all the dead animals and things would come and go in that cistern. And by the way, cisterns would inevitably leak because the ground kind of moves underneath and there'd be a crack in a cistern, just like we get cracks in swimming pools today. And one day they'd show up and there's no water in the cistern. Jesus is saying, I gave you a fountain of pure living water, which was himself. And they turned away from that and they tried to find life in other places. They dug cisterns for themselves to try to quench their thirst. Do you see what, what God is saying? He's saying, here's sin. Here's sin. All the other sins are surface level sins. The root sin is, is, is this. You have access to me, the source of living water, but you don't believe I'm enough. The root sin is unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief in what? That God will provide? That God is enough? That God has good intentions for you? Why do we doubt those things? We're living in deception. The core lie that Satan planted in human beings all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 is God cannot be trusted. God is withholding from us. So we start believing that lie pretty soon. We're like, I need to go dig my own cisterns because I think life's going to be found somewhere other than God, you see. So this is, for all of us, the core sin. Now, fast forward 600 years, God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus Christ say in John chapter 7? We'll put this on the screen. On the last day of the feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you see the connection? Jesus is saying, if you believe, if you drink from me, you will be satisfied. What was true for the Hebrew people is true for every human. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, and that is this, God has provided himself to us as a life source, as a source of water, so to speak, to use this metaphor. We don't believe he's what we need. We don't believe he's enough. We don't believe he's sufficient to quench our thirst, so we go other water sources. Every sin, why do we sin? Why do we lie? Why do we lust? Why do we steal? Why do we hurt people in various ways? It's because in those moments we believe something other than Christ promises life for us. We need to go outside of God's will to to dig a little hole in the ground to collect rainwater so we can drink because we're thirsty. Why do people sin? They're thirsty, just like you and me. 
And in those moments when we sin, we're not believing in Christ. Like maybe intellectually at some level, but we're not believing that he's the water source, that he's the bread of life, that he's the way, the truth, the life. You see, not in those little moments. This is something that you and I can relate to the world in. Uh, about a week ago, I was helping one of my daughters get ready for school in the morning. And, you know, for those of you that have children that still need your help to get ready in the morning to get to school, you know, it's a very intricate, well-orchestrated um, series of events that have to happen from the time the alarm goes off till the time they're out the door. And if you miss a beat or two, you get in trouble. Well, I missed a beat or two, but I was scrambling to catch up. And, you know, I'm still doing things for my high school I shouldn't say which of these daughters it was. I'm still doing things for one of my daughters that probably she should be doing on her own at this point in time. But, you know, I'm just trying to help her out. And don't judge me, okay? But, but I've, I've done all these things for her. She's kind of running late. I'm running behind. I'm frustrated. And, and then we finally usher her out the door. And, like, as she's going out the door, let's just say she's a little less than grateful. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. And in that moment, in, in instead of maybe, like, correcting her with, Wisdom and gentleness, I exploded. I exploded in anger. And, you know, I didn't cuss at her or anything like that. But, but I just, I was going to put her in her place, you see. Now, what was happening inside of me at that moment? What broken cistern was I trying to find life in? Well, my ego was hurt. You know, there was a part of me that was just sort of, you know, screaming out, she cannot take me for granted. She will not take me for granted. I, I was, I was um, feeling out of control, and I needed to reassert control of the situation. This is how I was feeling. So, so this, this desire for power, I wanted to sort of put her at a level that, that, that showed her out that, that I'm the one that's in control here. In that moment, I just made a micro choice in that moment to drink from another sister. To, to find fullness or attempt to find fullness somewhere else. And you see, it just exploded and it wounded her, you see. Jesus offers himself to us as a, a, a life source. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. If you're hungry, come to me. I'm the bread of life, etc. Here's what I mean by all this. What the world needs to understand about sin is that they're thirsty and, and all their ways of trying to quench their thirst are leading to dead ends in their lives and they're frustrated and they're hurting and they're unwilling to see why. The world needs to understand the same thing about sin that you and I need to understand about sin. And that's every misguided attempt to find life and fullness apart from Christ is missing the mark and will only leave you thirsty. The world needs to be convicted, you all, like, like shown the truth that their restless lives are evidence of a great thirst. Broken cisterns make you more thirsty. And God has come. God has come to say, look, it's not easy, this side of heaven. But if you lean on me, I will give you what you need. Now, we've only covered one of these three words. And I'm going to go through the next two very, very quickly because they all flow out of this one concept of sin. How would the Spirit lead us to turn back the darkness concerning righteousness? Well, what does the world think about righteousness? The world believes righteousness is also a social construct, kind of like sin. Like, there's no objective standard of righteousness. Basically, the world believes everyone's righteous in their own way. 
You know, everyone has the right to be who they are. Everyone's okay. You know, sure, some people struggle here and there, and, but everyone's right. Everyone's okay. And they expect other people to say that, to say that they're okay. Interesting. Jesus says, here's what you need to tell the world about righteousness. I go to the Father. You'll see me no longer. Well, that's confusing. What is Jesus saying? Well, let's talk first about what does he mean, I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. He's talking about what's about to happen to him. He's talking about his death, his burial, and then his resurrection and ascension. That's the whole series of events between John 16 and when he's going to be sitting with the Father. Because I go to the Father, my death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. In other words, he's talking exactly about the events that will make it possible for someone to be righteous, rightly related to God. The good news is, through simple faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in other words, that Jesus went into death and then was vindicated by the Father and now sits in the right hand of the Father. The good news is we can be righteous. So the world is right in the sense that there's a level playing field, but where the world is wrong is it's not that everyone's already righteous. It's that no one is righteous. No one is rightly related to God except one, the righteous one. And at this very moment, where is he? We can't see him because he is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And the intercession goes something like this. We sin, right? And Jesus says, that one is righteous because she's put her trust in me. That one is righteous because he's put his trust in me. That one is righteous because she's put her trust in me. Their belief, you see, because if, if the root sin is unbelief, what's the key to righteousness? What's the secret to righteousness? Belief in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. You see the gospel coming out in this. Convict the world concerning sin. Convict the world concerning righteousness and how they can become right with God. And then there's one more. There's one more. Convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of the world is judged i love this one how timely for our day we live in a day where we are obsessed by judging people like our, our culture and, and the society we live in is obsessed with judging people who's on the right side who's on the wrong side who's who's in the inside who's on the outside Who's on the right side of history? Who's on the wrong side of history? Who should be listened to? Who should be ignored? Who should be affirmed? Who should be canceled? We're judging people all the time. When Jesus said these words, y'all, he was about to take on the judgment of the whole world. He was about to walk directly into the teeth of judgment and declare, I'll take the judgment. I will take the judgment the whole world and why was Jesus willing to do that because he knew that that act would turn the deception upside down that it would expose the lie of the enemy that God cannot be trusted Jesus's own sacrificial death bearing the judgments of all would turn upside down the deception that God is holding out on you how can you say that in light of the cross how can you say that when, when the father offered his own son to bear the punishment for you? You see, the delusion starts to fall apart and the judgment turns on the ruler of the world. He is exposed as the liar. 
This is the gospel. What the world needs to know concerning judgment is Jesus has won. Jesus is the real one. He is the true one. The deceiver has been just that. He's been deceiver. He's been lying to us. And he's been judged and defeated. And here's what that means. Judgment is now in the hands of Jesus. Scripture tells us that because of the, the faithfulness of Christ and his obedience to the Father, through, even through death, that the Father has now put all things at his feet. Judgment is now in the hands of Jesus. And guess what that means? There will be no judgment for anyone in Christ. There will be no judgment for all who put their faith in Christ. The one who will be judged is Satan the deceiver, and the ones who will be judged are all that remain in the deception with the deceiver. They will receive the judgment of that lie, you see. But Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I've come into the world to open people's eyes. And if you believe, if you repent of the sin of unbelief, and believe in me, your eyes are opened, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This takes us to the Lord's Supper this morning, and so I want to invite you to take out the communion elements. I hope that you received them on your way in. If you didn't, I'll give you a a couple of minutes right now just to slip out and, and go go take the communion element and come back and sit with us. Those of you that are here can go ahead and pull out the bread and get it ready. I will lead you through. This is not just something we do every week that's unattached from the word of God speaking to us. The scripture always takes us to this place. The scripture always takes us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our life source. You know, the, the, same, the same supper where Jesus was explaining these things uh, about what's really going on behind the scenes in the world with the, the great deceiver and, you know, the sin of unbelief and, and the true righteousness that's found in him as he goes to the Father and, and the judgment. That same supper, he then turned their attention to the bread and the cup. And, and here's why he did that. He knew that they... We're still in the deception, you see. They, they, their hearts had not yet been transformed, so he offered them the cure. He offered them his broken body and his blood. And he said, take it, you know, believe that this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Drink this cup, which represents this, my blood shed for you. Do you see, through your belief, your eyes will be opened. So all who've put our trust in Jesus, we come to the table this morning with gratitude. And perhaps for you this morning, you're not at the table with us because you're still living in darkness. And I just want to encourage you. Jesus' arms are wide open to you. And he's saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And you come to him through faith, through belief. For all who believe in Jesus Christ, let's eat the bread with gratitude. And the cup as well for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Let's drink the cup with gratitude.
Amen. Amen. All right. Let's close our Bibles. Let's talk about what God has been doing in our midst in the last four weeks. You know, uh, I know some of you are visiting for the first time today, and you don't have context for this, and many of you have been through this with us for a number of weeks. We've been talking about our future here, and desire for, for this congregation to have a permanent home. We've been in this rented space for, uh, well, over 11 years or so, something like that. We've been looking for a permanent home for about nine years, and God's been leading us in various ways, and we're one church in two locations here Franklin there at Brentwood, they've got a permanent home, but what they don't have that we have is a a lobby space, a space to connect. We've been praying about what if the two congregations here, one church, come together and we see what God will do in our midst for the future, and we made a commitment, no debt. That's just something that God put on our hearts. We're we're not fundamentally opposed to debt. We've had had debt in the past in our church history, but we believe God's put us in a place just of faith, to trust Him, to see what He would give us. And so I want to share with you this morning that we have had 541 families make a commitment, a three-year commitment so far, 541 families. And those 541 families have committed $12 million to this, which is exceptional. Praise praise God for that, because here's how giving works. It feels like it's us (laughs) It feels like it's our decision, you know, in, in a sense, I'm sure there's a context, you know, where, where God does give us free will, but I'll tell you, it's led by his spirit. It's been the spirit that's just been saying, uh, opening people's hands in this body to this. Now, I want to share a, a little bit of context for this. Uh, you may know when we shared the plans that, like, the whole entirety of our plans that we feel like would, would really, we'd love to be able to do at both campuses, the price tag on all that to our, our best estimate at this point is 15 million dollars but here's the thing the thing is is kind of incredible what god has done and and that's this in four weeks 12 million dollars has come in and one of the things that we've said all along is we'll go as far as god takes us to go so if if 12 million is what god puts in our hands we will build according to that if he continues to bring in more and and I, I think he's going to over these three years we'll be able to do that but what we do know with the 12 million is we're going to be able to build that connection space at Brentwood we may trim back on some of the other things that we had designed there and we will be able to build a permanent campus for Franklin maybe slightly different than we first envisioned with what God's put in our hands but guys we are there on these two biggest priorities that God put before us without any debt we're not going to do any debt. So it's, it's honestly marvelous. Can you imagine us being able to have this permanent home for the next two, three, four, five plus generations without any debt? I don't know of other churches. I mean, there are others, but it's rare. It's rare for churches to be in this place, and, and this is what God has allowed us to do. So uh, according to our plans, we'll scale a few things back. We'll still be able to move forward with our primary um, uh, uh, things, but but here's what I want to say: it's still open, it's still available to give. We've had 541 families. I know there are other families that will be enjoying the benefits of this generosity that I would love to invite to be a part of this. And who knows, God, I think could be leading us all the way. But whether we ultimately get to 15 or not, here's what I believe and know: He's putting into our hands every dollar He wants us to steward for His plans for us his plans for us and so i i'm encouraged and i'd say the same thing if it had been only six million but it's 12 
million dollars in four weeks. It's just really unbelievable. So uh, I want to go personal on this, and then we're going to sing a song for a minute. Here's my vulnerable, kind of courageously real personal story. It, on Commitment Sunday, which I had in my head was going to be like the big giving day. Like in my mind, I'm thinking, and, and usually the way it works with most churches, is like 80% of the money comes in on Commitment Sunday. We had 6.3 million on Commitment Sunday, and I'm thinking, if that's 80%, we're not getting any, we're not going to be able to move. We're not going to be able to at least have a, a campus home. Maybe we could build some things at Brentwood campus. And, and then, you know, I will admit this, where my mind went next is, I failed. I failed. Now, it sounds silly for me to say that now, not just because of where the number ended, but because we're a team, you all. But, but I, I have this part of my role that's I'm responsible for leading our staff. And, and I felt this sense of like, did I misjudge? What happened? Is it? And of course, I'm, I'm just sort of like stewing in this place. And you know what the Spirit did? He convicted me of truth. He was so kind and gracious to me. And he reminded me, Rob, it is not about you. And he reminded me, Rob, I will put every dollar I want to put into the hands of this church, this body of Christ to steward. Not a dollar less. He reminded me of this. And then over these last four weeks, as more and more money has come in, honestly, it's just, I've been in tears. It's been a remarkable thing for me. So I want to share that with you, kind of a little bit of an insider look. One, one more really cool story, and then we're going to sing on this. So last night I kept waiting for the final text from William Kaline, who's our financial director and facilities director. He was the one that was scheduled to send the final count that we would announce this morning. He was waiting till the last minute late at night because more, a couple more commitments were coming in. And he texted us at, I think it was like, I mean, it's close to 10 o'clock. You know, I was like, man, I should be in bed right now. But he texted me this, and it was... 11.9, 11.9 million dollars. And I was like, oh, that's incredible, that's amazing. And then my, my honest instinct was, I'm going to say 12, because we're right close to 12, and I'm just going to round it up to 12, okay? And then I thought about that for a couple minutes, I was like, I don't know if that's the right thing to do, <laughs> okay? And then, I promise you, this is, and I'm not making, I'm not exaggerating a bit of this. Two minutes later, William texts again, actually, I just checked my junk mail where there was literally one more pledge for $100,000. We officially made it to $12 million. That's just silly. It's so cool. I, I, I texted him back and I was like, who finds $100,000 in their junk mail? <laughs> I wish I did. Oh, man. But listen, I'll tell you, God's just been reminding us the whole journey that this is all about him. It is all about him. Isn't that good? So let's stand to our feet. Uh, we're going to sing together. Before we do, I'm going to lead you in this responsive reading together. It's a prayer. And let me tell you where this comes from. It comes from a prayer that Nehemiah prayed, a prayer of dedication for the walls of Jerusalem that the people had rebuilt. Because guess what? God brought them back from exile. He brought them back from exile, and he called them to rebuild the walls. And so I'm going to read the part of the leader. You'll read the part of the people. But this comes from Nehemiah's prayer at the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem. Let's read this together, and then we'll sing this song. O God, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. 
Say it with me. You preserve all of them, and we join the host of heaven to worship you. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are great in mercies. Your good spirit instructs us. You sustain and keep us. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant in steadfast love, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, your goodness on our behalf, your plans which are for your glory, your heart for us which is ever faithful. Amen. Amen.